Good morning, Church of the Valley. Happy Easter Sunday, next Sunday. It is so nice to be with you, and you all look so nice, and the weather is so nice. I wrote this before this morning. And we're going to study a passage today that is anything but nice. Not because it beats us up or shows us how awful we are, but because politics tend to muck stuff up, don't they? And today we will see Paul being held against his will, but not against God's will. To proclaim the gospel and his testimony of God intervening in his life in front of some very influential people. But this passage, as we come to it and we think about it, what it shows about God's character, it will probably war against some of what we assume about God, while also keeping right in front of us the mission of the proclamation of the gospel of grace, and how Paul had been called to share such a thing to the Gentiles, no matter what was happening around him. Let's begin where we left off two weeks ago, verse 1 of chapter 24, which Mark just read. Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. All right. If you're just joining us or your memory doesn't last for more than two weeks, I'm looking at you, Pastor Mike. Paul has been accused by some antagonistic Jews of teaching against the law of Moses and the prophets and for taking a Gentile into the temple, which was strictly not allowed due to the Jewish law. And these accusers had traveled hundreds of miles to accuse Paul in Ephesus and Corinth and Jerusalem. And here they're traveling again to Caesarea to bring these accusations again against Paul. The problem with all of this is that while they obviously didn't like Paul and his message, their accusations against him were false. And the assumptions that they had were not at all proven. And after attempting to discipline Paul, just for being accused, mind you, Paul pulled out the Roman citizen card, which got him a lot of benefits and protection from the Roman government, so much so that hundreds of soldiers were employed to transport Paul to Caesarea because of a secret plot that was made to have Paul killed. So here we are, reading about when Paul actually was formally accused and would have the opportunity to stand before Governor Felix and defend against these accusations. Now, we're going to dive into this conversation between the accusers of Paul, the governor Felix, and Paul's defense of these accusations, and I think there's more in this passage than I originally realized. Verse 2, when Paul was called in, Tertullus, if anyone's looking to name a child, there's one, Tertullus, presented his case before Felix. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation everywhere, in every way. Most excellent, Felix. I don't know tone, but this is what I assume. We acknowledge this with profound gratitude. (laughs) But in order to not weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. So we have Tertullus, a Jewish lawyer, who has been employed to bring this case against Paul via via a legal matter, which the Roman governor would accept and understand. Paul had been in prison for five days. As the accusers were waited on to provide these accusations specifically against Paul, and this lawyer begins with what I think is useless flattery to essentially butter up. 
Governor, Governor Felix. Felix, though, is an interesting historical figure. If some of you remember from history, back in school, Felix was a successor to Pontius Pilate. We know something about him from secular history. He had been the governor of the province of Judea for about five to seven years at this time, as this chapter is recorded, and had previously lived for two years in the city of Samaria. He knew something about the Jews and about their nation. He was born a slave, but his brother Pallas happened somehow to become a favorite of the emperor in Rome. Through the influence of Pallas, his brother Felix had been freed from slavery and somewhat later had been appointed governor of this province. He was the first slave in history to become a governor of a Roman province. He had been married by this time to three princesses. The first one we know nothing about except that she was a princess. The second wife was the granddaughter of Antony and Cleopatra. Yes, that Antony and Cleopatra. The third wife appears with him in this account. Her name was Drusilla. She was a Jewess, the doctor of Her uh, the doctor, the daughter of Herod Agrippa I, the king who had put the apostle James to death. She had been the wife of the king of Amisa, but Felix had seduced her, and now she was living with him as his wife. Ooh, scandalous! This man, Felix, completely shady. He was known to hire thugs to eliminate even friends who happened to get in the way of his political ambitions. This is who this lawyer is buttering up and who Paul must appear before in the hopes of a fair trial. Verse 5, we have found this man, speaking about Paul, to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is the ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple, so we seized him. Verse 7. Uh-huh. If you look in your own notes, in, in the footnote of your Bible, technically, this verse, 7 in Acts 24, has not been found consistently among most of the oldest transcripts that we have of the scriptures, and so we don't treat verse 7 as canonized or God-breathed, as we do the words that are consistently found throughout the scriptures that were found in the earliest of transcripts. So why do I bring this up? Why not just skip it like most people would? Well, because how we view and interpret scriptures really, really matters. People attempt to bend the scriptures to support heresy all of the time. And so when we have a situation like this, it's not only marked in your Bible, but we want to not just skip it, while also treating the footnote like it doesn't matter, because it does. It, something was said, but we don't have it in the original transcripts. For those of you who wonder what verse 7 specifically said in some of the transcripts, here's what it said. It's really not scandalous. We wanted to judge him according to our own law, but Lysias, the commander, came along and with much violence took him out of our hands, ordering his accusers to come before you. All right, that's consistent, so why not just leave it in? Because it wasn't in the earliest of transcripts, and the way we view Scripture really matters. Now, these words are not untrue from what we can tell about the text and what we've studied up until now. The only question that could come up is this idea of great violence could be debated. Was this lawyer using this language to attempt to find sympathy from the governor? Was there violence that perhaps the scriptures do not specifically address? We do not know for sure, but because this verse was not in the original transcripts, we don't have to try to figure this out. 
we do not have to address those questions in the study because verse 7 in particular is not treated like God breathes Scripture. And when we come to a situation like this, and this happens periodically throughout the, the, the Bible, we do not ignore, we do not skip, but we don't also treat it like it is from God. Okay, that's enough of that. Verse 8. By examining him yourself, Tertullus says, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. The other Jews joined in on the accusations asserting that these things were true. So the lawyer brings up three accusations against Paul, which were pretty consistent among what we have learned about Paul in Corinth, Ephesus, and Jerusalem, where there are these accusatory Jews who have followed Paul throughout these places, walked hundreds and hundreds of miles, and they accuse Paul of being a troublemaker or a riot starter by causing a ruckus in the places he had been sharing about the gospel of grace which for the Roman Empire is an accusation that they would take really seriously and they would care about because civil disorder is something they would put an end to as quickly as possible because they want no one to compete with their power and their authority as they were attempting to dominate the world. Next, the lawyer accuses Paul of being a religious fanatic, or his words, ringleader which in this context, especially, and even according to Jesus' own words, as a prophecy, there would and were a ton of people who came in the name of the Lord as a Messiah figure, and yet they were false messiahs, and would create, I love this word, a lot of ruckus, but would be found to be inferior. They'd be found to be not a true Messiah, which is what the lawyer is accusing Paul of being, not a true Messiah that Paul was a ringleader for this Nazarene religion, that the Jews didn't consider a true religion. They considered it a sect or a cult, a poor imitation of the Hebrew religion that they believed in. And yet, I want to take us back to some of Jesus' own words in the gospel according to Matthew. Jesus speaks to his disciples before his death and resurrection. He discusses end times, and if you want to know my stance on end times, uh, Jesus is closer to coming back today than ever. That's my stance on end times. You're welcome. But Jesus points out what would happen and continues to happen. Matthew 24, verse 4. Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and they will deceive many. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all the nations because of me. And at that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. All right, who's in? Doesn't this sound fun? Who wants to be a part of this? Who wants to follow Jesus? Jesus, always being the encourager, points out how bad it must be come. And yet it's been like this for 2,000 years, and people believe until they don't. People claim to love God until they don't. Now, while I personally ascribe to the theology that you don't lose your salvation, I think interpreting Jesus' words means that there are many who claim to believe but really don't. And as the heat gets turned up, people flee. God doesn't say trials won't come. God says they will come, but a genuine faith is strengthened as we endure 
the trials as they get harder and harder. So uh, there's a guy named Peter. He denies Christ three times. And as he has decided to follow Jesus after the resurrection, he writes a letter to the church. And he says this in his letter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish. It can never spoil. It can never fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. But then he makes it a little harder, verse 6. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. If you're like me, you struggle with trials. If you're like me, you struggle with the reality that this world isn't that easy. And so for the true believer, our faith is only strengthened, proven, exercised, and becomes even more important to us through these trials. But for the false messiahs, for the false believers, their faith isn't in God, nor has the gift of grace, faith, and salvation been received, but rather a deceiving faith which has been prioritized until it's no longer believed or been given up on because it's not God and his power that is leading a false believer, but rather our natural selfishness that does perish and is not the power of God. And turning back to this accusation against Paul, the Jews were saying that Paul was the ringleader of another false religion, a sect, a false messiah, which considering there were thousands of these that have happened and continue to happen, I kind of can't blame these religious Jews for not believing Paul and the gospel of grace. Did you know that in this room today, if you are actually a true believer of Jesus Christ, that you're not the majority? I know that's surprising to most of you. Like, I know it's hard to believe with all the traffic you had to deal with this morning as you drove to church. But the fact is, most refuse to believe. Most people do exactly what Jesus said that they would do. Look at Jesus' words as he closes the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 7, 13, he says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Jesus says that those who go through a gate choose the wide gate, which leads to destruction. And I'm not sure if he's being very subtle here in his description of what his gate is and, how, and who goes through it. He says, many. And who is it that goes through the small, narrow gate? A few. So I don't think there should, this should cause any of us to think that we're good and special because of anything we have done, but I hope it would cause us to realize how amazing God's grace is that any of us actually do know and love the Lord, because it's not very many that do. 
And I hope this would make us even more urgent. It would make us more intentional. It would make us more patient with and caring for those who are yet to believe, not because we are good on our own, but because God's grace is available to any and everyone who would believe. Christianity is a lot more inclusive than we realize. But when someone doesn't believe, it's not because you personally did not share it correctly or you didn't come up with the right words to say. It's because the king of this world, the prince of darkness, has blinded them. And their sin, when you're blinded to the gospel and the truth of it, sin is just too attractive. The past few years especially has been pretty pruning, hasn't it? Like people who claimed Christ, who looked the part, who were possibly, let's be honest, way more passionate outwardly than perhaps we are, are now no longer following Jesus. Perhaps their politics or their need for recognition or some other priority has overcome their, this is for the podcast, quotes, faith in Jesus. And what I believe the gospel tells us is that the true grace that is offered by God received by faith, is so attractive, so life-changing, so life-giving that anything else, when we believe in the gospel, will not suffice. Anything this world gives us will not satisfy more than a personal experiential relationship with God's only Son, Jesus Christ. And for those who have received grace through faith in Christ, they continue They continue even through the really hard stuff. They continue not because they have to, but because God does the heavy lifting. Are your backs tired? He promised that he would do the heavy lifting for those whom he had chosen, those whom he had saved, those whom are found in Christ. So Paul who is not a false messiah, and who is not following a false messiah. Spoiler, you know how I know this? Because Jesus rose from the dead. Paul was accused of being a riot maker, of being a ringleader to a cult. And lastly, the lawyer Tertullus accuses Paul of disregarding the Jewish law by taking a Gentile into the temple, and all three of these things are incorrect. All three of these things are without proof and are ultimately false accusations brought on by people who hate God, if they know it or not. But then Paul's allowed to retort. Let me retort. When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. You can easily verify that more than that no more than 12 days ago, I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. (sighs) Tertullus buttered him up, didn't he? Paul doesn't have a lot of good to say about Governor Felix, but he states what is true. You, for a number of years, have been judge over the nation. Mm Mm-hmm. This is like when you see a baby who isn't all that cute, and you're like, well, it's a baby. (laughs) What? None of you do that? (laughs) Come on. All babies are so cute, according to their moms. All right, that's fine. (laughs) Moving on. So Paul then begins to defend these ridiculous assumptions about him. 
I wasn't arguing with anyone. I wasn't causing a riot or stirring up a crowd. I was not in the synagogue, not anywhere in the city. I had only been there for 12 days. Verse 13, and they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. Not only are these accusations wrong, but there's no proof. Have you ever been accused of stuff that isn't true? If you haven't, just wait. Personally, when this happens, I want to fight back, like I'm sure many of you do. And sometimes, unfortunately, I have fought back. But I personally have felt at times where what God really wanted me to do was not be my own defender, but to keep my mouth quiet and to allow the truth to come out because my accusers didn't have evidence or proof that was in reality. Rather, they had hatred towards what I stood for because the gospel is so offensive to people who are selfish and self-righteous because the gospel isn't about you. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. But Paul continues to defend to the governor. He says, verse 14, However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law that is written in the prophets, and I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. I love what Paul does here defending the accusations against him, he preaches his beliefs to the governor. He speaks of the resurrection, and he points out that unlike what he's being accused of, he believes and agrees with the law and the prophets. I hope if you identify as a Christian today that you also believe in the law and the prophets. There is this underlying heresy that in some churches, there is this beginning to believe that the Old Testament is just old and unnecessary. But as we speak about often the Hebrew scriptures, the left side of your Bible, Genesis to Malachi, point out the need of a savior and the Old Testament foreshadows the coming of our king and the history of Israel who constantly failed. But God, who is rich in mercy, brings the ultimate king, the ultimate sacrifice, and it is through Jesus alone that any of us are forgiven of our sin. So then Paul continues. Verse 17, after an absence of several years, Paul says, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor, to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me. Nor was I involved in any disturbance, but there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you to bring these charges if they have anything against me, or these who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Paul continues to defend and state the facts. He came to Jerusalem with gifts to the elders of the church, and he was ceremonially clean after taking a Nazarite vow. He came to the temple to worship and did not draw a crowd or start a riot. And he also points out that some of his accusers were not present. But those who were there could not come up with an actual proven and factual charge against Paul. But Paul closes with really the climax 
of all of Paul's preaching, the thing he wanted his hearers to hear and understand more than anything. Verse 21, unless it is this one thing that I shouted as I stood in their presence, it is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. Paul again takes it back to the resurrection. Last week, I received a few comments, a few emails, a few texts from people in this church speaking about Easter, and the consensus was this. It was encouraging that Easter Sunday was like every other Sunday where we exalt the resurrection of Jesus Christ as evidence of our faith and also the power of God. We should not hear that Jesus is alive once a year if it's true. And Paul, knowing that the resurrection was of first importance, according to his writings to, first Corinthian, to the church in Corinth and 1 Corinthians, now states that he understands that it was the power of the resurrection that has put him on trial because he said it. Last week, I pointed out that if you're going to argue against Christianity, it is the resurrection of Jesus that you must discredit. And let me know when you want to get baptized. <laughs> Paul states later on in 1 Corinthians 15 that without the resurrection, Christians were still in our sins and ought to be pitied more than anyone, but with the resurrection, we have the power of God to trust in and to live by. So church, I want to be real. I don't, I don't know what your personal dependence is in. I don't know what your, where your confidence lies but I want to tell you this this week. I want to tell you this every week. We can live in great surety that Jesus is alive. And he is as alive today as he was on the third day. And you know what we do here at Church of the Valley? As the people of Church of the Valley, as a part of the church of the living God, we raise awareness that Jesus is alive. That is what we do here. And we want to make this known. There is nothing else that we could believe in that makes a lick of difference. There is nothing I can do to make myself righteous. It is Jesus Christ who did it for me because he is alive. Can I get a witness? Uh, uh, live stream, someone said amen. And this God, he is at work. He is not far from any of us, and we can grow into Jesus' likeness as we lean into this resurrected Messiah who accomplished on the cross and through the resurrection from the dead what you and I are unable to do for ourselves, which is stand before God innocent and forgiven. Without Jesus' finished work on the cross, we've got nothing. Without his resurrection from the dead, we've got nothing. And Paul knew this. And then verse 22, then Felix who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias, the commander, comes, he said, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. So for like five to seven years, Felix had governed Judea, and he was well-versed. He was well-acquainted with the movement known as the way, the Christians. Here's, here's the derogatory term for Christians in the first century, the little Christs. And these were the people who followed Jesus, who was known as the way, the truth, and the life. And Felix knew that this group of people and their beliefs were not violent, insurrectionists at all. 
But he claimed to wait on the Roman commander, Lysias, for his ruling. But the real reason he was holding Paul captive was for what it did for him politically, where it would please the Jews who were against Paul. And as we will read, perhaps also give Felix a bit of a financial advantage as well. Verse 24. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. (laughs) What a jerk. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. So he sent for him frequently, and he talked with him. I wonder what those conversations were like. (laughs) Then enter in Drusilla, Felix's third wife, the daughter of Herod Agrippa I. It was common knowledge at the time that Felix convinced Drusilla to leave her first husband and marry him, and she was 16. Felix lacked morality. Perhaps this could be why Paul speaks about what? Righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come in particular. Now, I totally get this, if this is the case. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you in on a little secret that pretty much just me and the teaching team know. I've been up here speaking before, and I see someone that I specifically want to speak to, but I know they don't want to be preached at. Most people like to be preached over, Right? And so I'll emphasize a point I see in the text or something in particular that I feel they may need to hear. And here's the funny part, though. Ten times out of ten, when I do this, someone I wasn't thinking about at all comes up to me, either in person or even some who watched online, and they tell me this. Tim, I don't know if you know this. I don't know if this was the case. But I felt like you were speaking right to me and knew exactly what was going on in my life and what I needed to hear. And I thankfully can say, nope, wasn't you. (laughs) But perhaps, Paul perhaps wasn't holding back and was very specific about righteousness, self-control, and future judgment. And what does Luke say that Felix felt? Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. I'll send for you when it's convenient. Now, I don't know if this is true for everyone, but I have been reading this book, the Bible. Doesn't matter what translation. I've been reading the Bible, and it has scared me. Children, earmuffs. It scared the hell out of me in some ways. Get it? That's a pun. Never mind. And and it's almost like God was speaking right to me, right in the circumstance that I was in. And you know why? Because the Word of God says why. The Word of God is living and active, and it is the very words of God. And if there is a God, He probably knows you better than anyone. Don't you think? So you don't need an audible voice, church. You need to open this book and read these words that do address you and your needs, and your challenges, and ultimately what each and every single one of us truly need, which is a Savior, a Christ, and a King. And thankfully, Jesus is all three. Verse 27. When two years passed, 
Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. But because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. Well, isn't that special? See, Felix was summoned to Rome in 59 AD, according to Roman history, when the Jewish leaders made a case against him for mismanagement and poor handling of conflict between the Jews and Syrians in Caesarea. And he left Paul in prison with the hope that he'd probably receive a bribe and also to build more and more political clout among those who he wanted their votes. I am so glad that politicians never do this anymore. Worship team, feel free to join me on the platform. Church, there's something, as I read this passage, as I felt like, okay, this is just another discussion of what we've been studying over the past three chapters, and next week it's going to be similar, but it's going to be another discussion. But as I studied this, and I'm like, okay, Luke, are you just being redundant? He wasn't, because there's something specific that I noticed in this passage. I mean, in a secular sense, you can just say that it was ultimately politics that imprisoned Paul. It wasn't his disobedience, as some theologians assume. It wasn't bad luck. It was man's hatred against the gospel of grace, and politics were used as the motivating factor for the commander and the governor, and as we'll study next week, by an earthly king who would just leave people wanting for a heavenly king, and that king is Jesus. Paul, who had grown up being as religious as you could be, Paul, who was self-righteous and pious on a level that very few have ever seen. That same Paul, who was persecuting the way, ran into Jesus on the road to Emmaus. And absolutely everything changed for him. Damascus. Damascus. It wasn't just his religion or way of life that changed, but his identity which now, because of belief in the risen Savior, made him a new creation, a child of God, an ambassador of Christ, a member of the body of Christ, a portion of the bride of Christ, and Paul became one of God's sheep. I'm a sheep. Under the shepherding of the good shepherd. And it was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that this happened for him and could happen for you today. That you would understand that relationship with God is available. But it requires you to bow a knee. It requires you to stop trying to be your own God. It requires you to allow God to overrule you by receiving that grace through faith. So let's pray. God, I pray for us as a people that... When I had pastors ask me how Easter was, I was very excited that we got to talk about the resurrection of Jesus like we do every week. And I got to see a people, a culture of people that are, by your grace, becoming more and more selfless and more willing to trust you, Lord, at your word. And so, God, would that be true as we worship in song, as we uh, do takeaways, as we leave this place, would we be more willing to be selfless, not because we think it earns us anything, but because Christ Jesus died for us when we were at our worst. And because of your love, God, we stand righteous before you, 
because of what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. God, may we live through the reality that is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that we stand forgiven. We love you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.